Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Provoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Born and raised in Sicily, Italy, Enrico Puglisi learned to fish by watching his father catch dinner in the Mediterranean Sea. They even used feathers from their own chickens, unintentionally seeding the concept of fly fishing in Enrico's mind. But it wasn't until Enrico received a bill for his favorite tying material that he accidentally fell into the fly fishing industry. In this episode of Anchored, we hear Enrico's incredible story from Ritz-Carlton chef to one of the greatest innovators of our time. If you like this episode, I'd like to invite you to become a member of Anchored Outdoors. In addition to our three-phase membership and masterclasses, we also host monthly tying nights with some of the best fly tires in the business. Find out more and become a member today at www.anchoredoutdoors.com. <laughs> Born and raised in Sicily, Italy, which is south of Italy, is an island, um, basically by the water, the Mediterranean Sea, and that's where I was born a long time ago. Long time ago. <laughs> Can't be that long ago. Long time ago. Long time ago. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I hear that there's good fishing in Italy, but I've never actually, I've been to Italy, but haven't well, fished there. Well, uh, if we're talking about fresh water in terms of a trout, it, there is a good fishing in Italy, that's for sure. Into the Alps uh, and the Apennines Mountain. Uh, good trout fishing, really good. Uh much more to be discovered. In terms of salt water, the Mediterranean, uh, you have to do mainly blue water, which is the tuna, the magi magi, and so forth and so on. Uh, rather than that, uh, you know, the Mediterranean doesn't offer that kind of salt water uh, fly fishing that we have in the United States. Uh, so that's basically right. it. Gotcha. Now, um, you live in the United States now, which we will come back to. Can you tell me, before we go there, how you got into fishing in general? Uh, fishing in general started basically when I was a 
probably five years old, if I remember correctly, with my father. Um, it was uh, done for pleasure. And then, you know, might as well, you catch a couple of fish, you know, you put on the table. If you catch more than a couple of fish, you will share with uh, next door neighbors. That's the way it used to be those days. You know, everybody shares what what we got. And, uh, and that's how it gets started. And uh, well, fortunately, uh, it was it happened in a way that it was a kind of, uh, how can I say? I, I don't want to sound to be a bad guy, but uh, my father used to have a partner when I was at that age, I think around five. And uh, he there was no room for me to go fishing with them. Oh. You know, they, didn't, they didn't own a car, so they couldn't put me in a car. There was a, one of those you know, Italian scooter, the Vespa. Yeah. It was a room only for two, not for three, right? And to make a long story short, uh, unfortunately, at some point, uh, uh, my father partner passed away. And all of a sudden, my father had no more partners in, the, in fishing. And guess what? I became his, his partner. How cool. Hallelujah. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> and that's how it really started. And learning basically uh, the basics, uh, fishing with bait, of course. There was no fly fishing for me those days. And not even later. Uh, fly fishing was something that uh, I discovered here in the United States. Oh, oh, interesting. Not in, not, not, not in Italy. No, 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 not in Italy. I, you know, I had a, an idea about uh, fly fishing, but it wasn't a really clear idea what it was all about. It mainly was for fresh water, for trout. But I knew very, very, very little. For me, it was basically... Uh, uh, with bait and lures and uh, nets and stuff like that. They used to go fishing and having a good time. You know, that's pretty much what was it. And then when I moved in the United States, uh, the whole thing happened. Uh, and it was a really long journey for me. Very enjoyable. Very, very enjoyable. And, uh, you know, here we are. I mean, it's... But why? Yeah. <laughs> why the states? Well, tell me that story. I I didn't know any of this. This is so interesting. Uh, well, it's a long story. I'm gonna make it very short. Uh, those days, I used to be a chef in a major hotel in town, uh, and uh, my wife uh, Karen uh, came to the hotel where where I was the chef and for an internal because she was going to other. A culinary institute. So here we are, you know, me being the chef and having this uh, girl coming from the United States in my kitchen with my crew, you know, uh, in training, in a training program. That's when everything, you know, got set on fire. And uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> a couple of years later, uh, I, I moved in the United States. Also, oh, you followed her. You, yeah. you followed her to the states. Uh, yes, I did. Uh, I followed her to the state uh, because you know I wanted to get get married, of course, which we did in 1980. Uh, but to be honest, and uh, if I didn't met my if my wife she never came in the in, in Sicily to do that training program and. 
uh, in the hotel where I was a chef. I probably will never be in the United States, and I will never have done what I did on the fly fishing uh, world for all these years. Uh, that is reality, pretty much. If I wasn't here, I'm sure somebody else would have done what I did. It. There's no question about that. Uh, but it relates to the fact that from Sicily, I moved in the United States in New York and discovered fly fishing. And to me, it was like, uh, gee, this is heaven. You know, all this fishery we have over here from trout, fresh water and salt water here in my home water in the Long Island Sound, it was a heaven. And that's where I started. Okay, so tell me how you started, or how did you start fly fishing in the States? Do you remember your Uh, first time? (laughs) Oh, yes, I do remember. So I, uh, uh, through magazine, you know, those days there was not really that many magazines available. Probably there was one or two. Uh, If I remember correctly, it was the uh, fly fisherman, and probably, and the fly tire if I remember correctly, but honestly, I cannot remember. And they start to go through the magazine, mainly flipping the pages, because my English those days was a zero. I mean, still, as you can hear, not my language, let's put it this way, but, you know, flipping through the magazine and looking at the picture and start to uh, looking in my vocabulary and dictionary to start to understand. And then, uh, you know, with the help of my wife, I started understanding more and more. I say, you know, this is something I really like it. You know, I mean, how is that possible? You know, putting a couple of feathers and a couple of deer hair or whatever in a hook and then you fool the fish. Uh, mainly because I always have done uh, challenging things in my life. You know, always. And that to me was a really, really intriguing. I said, I want to find out what it's all about. And that's when I started. And basically, I did start it, believe it or not, with trout, trout fishing, not in salt water. So in the Long Island Sound, we do have a, a couple of spring creeks, and there is a trout. And the one in particular is they stuck that. Uh, this is Spring Creek, but also there is a, those days, not anymore as far as I know, uh, sea running brown trout coming in, into the river as well. So I started over there with nymph, with the woolly burger, and, you know, what basically was wet fly fishing, wasn't much of a dry fly. Uh, it still is. Uh, because those fish, they are mainly stock fish. So did that, done that for several years, and then after that, I say, gee, you know, this is getting boring over here. You know, I, I think I needed to <laughs> investigate the different waters and see what's around, right? And uh, again, with the help of my wife, uh, I kind of discovered the Cascades water system upstate New York which is one of the best uh, river systems we have in the United States when it comes to wild trout. There's no question about that. So go up to the uh, Cuskill and with my equipment, my Long Island equipment, you know, the nymphing, the woolly burger, uh, the, 
you know, the wet fly and it was a disaster. Nothing really happens. How is that possible? I mean, I was killing those fish over there. <laughs> and, and over here, I mean, I'm not capable to get, you know, any fish. And that, that really kind of, you know, to say as it is, it pissed me off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how is that possible? You know, it, it doesn't work like that. I have to get this fish, you know, as I did in Long Island. And then it took me a while. And it really didn't happen. It didn't happen because, of course, we're talking about wild fishery and it's totally it's different story. Mainly is a dry fly fishing up into uh, to the Cascades. Uh, I when I first started fishing over there, I caught it. I, I remember a nice, beautiful rainbow trout in a stone fly uh, because mainly I knew how to uh, nymphing more than dry fly. I didn't know nothing about dry flies those days. So I got this beautiful uh, rainbow trout and it probably was 19, 20, 21, I don't remember. It was a nice, beautiful fish, healthy. And then I get this thing on my net. I say, gee, what is this? It's a bait fish because used to uh, remember those days fishing along the island, you know, catching, you know, 24, 26, 28, big brown because again, those were stuck fish. So I throw that fish in the water. I say, eh, what the hell? This is not, you know, this is not a good fish. I mean, this is a bait fish. Well, guess what? Until these days, I'm still looking for the fish I throw away there. In a way, <laughs> I have not been able to, to cut them back, but uh, it was a really uh, interesting story for me. And I learned the fact that, you know, it's not easy unless you put your brain to work. And then, of course, go back to the magazine and check in information on local people and all that kind of uh, homework. Uh, I learned that you want to catch fish over there, you have to learn the art of a dry fly. And that's what I did. So basically, get to work, dry fly necks and the dubbing and the, and the, the quills and, you know, the Size of 12, 14, 16, very, very little flies, as you know. Uh, and then little by little, year after year, learning all the technique. And, and I was very happy start to catch fish. And that was it. You know, I started my fly fishing in basically for trout. I didn't know nothing about salt water uh, at all. Zero. I had no idea what was going on here in my local water in the Long Island Sound. Were you still a chef at this point? At that point, I still was a chef. Yes, I was. Right. Uh, working in a major hotel in New York City. Uh, I did that for uh, probably another, let's see, um, another 15 years. Oh, wow. After 1980, yeah. Which hotel was yeah, it? Is, this, yeah. is it a hotel we'll know? Uh, one is the United National Plaza Hotel. The other one is the Ritz-Carlton. Oh, my gosh. Right? Yeah, yeah. One of the major hotels, you know, I was uh, qualified enough to have a, a really good position on those hotels. I had my experience in Sicily. I was a chef on the hotels back uh, in Sicily. So I was uh, more than qualified to be uh, working on those hotels. Of course, you know, I had to 
speed up with my English, and that's what I did. It. I had to go to the school, and you know, the usual routine. You gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> you sound like a New Yorker, um, which you are. But what, what was it like transitioning into New York? I mean, did you have any major culture shock? Um, of course, yes, because uh, uh, just for you to know, my little town, uh, those days, until these days, is still around 6,000 people. Everybody knew each other. Everybody cared about each other. And uh, coming in New York, of course, and you just look up this way and then you see what you see in New York in Manhattan. Well, it's a big shack, you know, and... Uh, uh, it was a really intimidating to me, and although I do live in Queens, which is you know by train it takes me twenty minutes to get downtown Manhattan, uh, but still a lot of people, a lot of car, big building, uh, stores everywhere. Everything is big. I mean, big, you know, big. And to me, it was something that I mean, how am I gonna? Can you handle this whole thing at once, right? So, one of those things, you know, you adapt. You adapt. Uh, there might be things that you don't like it, but, you know, you'll, you'll do what it needed to be done. You know, I was happy to be here, my wife, and then, of course, kids coming along, and you build your your life pretty much. So, that's how I was on my transition, little by little, year after year. You know, with the help of my wife, of course, and their family, uh, you know, my sister-in-law, father-in-law, mother-in-law, everybody, you know, family's family, you know, the way it is. Yeah. So, and um, I survived. Right. I survived. It's funny. I, I made I made the mistake of driving downtown Manhattan once, and I will never do that again. <laughs> That's right. Never do that. Never, 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 never. No big mistake. Oh, I have, I have a non-fishing question for you, actually, about Sicily. Sure. Is it true that in Sicily, the pizza is so thin that you have to use scissors to cut it? Um, not really. I don't think, I don't think that's the case. Uh, a thin pizza is a, a thin pizza comes actually these days. You know, those days, back my days, the pizza was not that thin as it is right now. Right now, everybody's a master uh, pizzaiolo. Let's, let's, you know, let's say this way. You know, someone makes thinner than others. But no, uh, to answer to your question, uh, the pizza back home was not cut by scissors. Uh, by knife, but not by scissors. Not even these days they use the scissors, you know. Uh, probably they will use a scissor at home, but uh, no, not in a regular pizzeria. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Now, as far as fly fishing goes, how did you end up getting into the fly fishing industry? Uh, <laughs> you know, when it says that uh, when you... Uh, looking for something and you cannot find it, what you're looking for, then you're going to have to do that yourself. And that's pretty much what happened to me. Uh, because, and how did that happen was uh, quite interesting. Uh, going back, what I learned on uh, fly fishing for trout in the, in the system of state New York. And then all of a sudden, I 
I got friends, uh, people that talk to me. Well, you know, what basically what are you doing? You're chasing those bait fish upstate New York. You have to travel three hours by car to get there, and then another three hours coming back home. I mean, why are you doing that? I said, what are you talking about? You know, let me understand because I'm a little bit lost over here. So, well, come over here. Let me show you how this thing works. So I went with this fellow, and he showed me what it's all about saltwater fly fishing right in my own backyard. Right in my own backyard. I didn't know nothing about it. It's fried bass. Those days, we we used to catch fried bass up to 36, 38-inch long fish. I mean, big fish, blue fish. I, I mean, I said, wait a minute. What is that I'm missing over here? Right? So all of a sudden, you know, the old new doors open. And you want to know what is behind those doors. So, hmm, let me, let me see what it is. So sure enough, I start to learn that process, you know, the transaction to fresh water to salt water, which is, as you know, it's totally different. It's totally different. <sighs> so here it goes. Heavier heart rods, heavier fly line, bigger flies, bigger fish. And, you know, when it comes to fly, uh, big big flies. I mean, yeah, you do uh, fish with a small fly, but mainly around here, we use a big fly, big flies. So, in the beginning, was it really nice? I mean, of course, I have to learn how to use the a nine weight, a ten weight. Those days when I started, mainly we were using a ten weight and not nine weight. Uh, and these days, you scale down to nine, eight, and eight weight, pretty much what we're fishing for. So when I first started, and then I first got my striped bass, and I kind of put it together, a fly that this fellow that showed me all about it, showed me was a clouds of minnow, and I lifted the silver because, I mean, those days, uh, those were the only flies available. I lifted the silvers and clouds, and uh, it's lopsided called, which is a fly that done by this gentleman, uh, Lou Tabory from Connecticut. And, he, and to me, that person, uh, he was the father of our Northeast um, striped bass fishery. Uh, we learned a lot from the from the film, from the gentleman. So basically, uh, fishing for striped bass and mainly fishing for bluefish. Uh, those fish are vicious. You know, uh, they have a feet, so they bite, and they, the especially the bluefish is one fly, one fish, and then you have to tie another one because the fly get totally destroyed. So can you imagine uh, me, you, and everybody else that takes 15 minutes? Actually, those days took me 15, 20 minutes and maybe more to do the perfect closing mirror, to do the perfect lifted deceiver, the perfect slap side done with feathers and bucktail. All of a sudden, you hook a... a uh, eight, ten pounds of a bluefish and the fly get destroyed, then you have to put another one. I say, wait a minute, this is not really working for me. This is not working for me. I'm I'm wasting my time, more time to tie the fly than not really going fishing and catch fish. 
So that's when I start to put my brain to work. I said, well, problem, solution. What's the solution? The solution wasn't that easy. Because in reality, we all knew about clouses left to the sea, done only with natural materials. So what is the alternative over here? Those days, the only synthetic materials available, uh, as far as I can remember, there, it was this H.T. Thompson also here, which is a nylon uh, materials, very stiff, but it's a kind of crinky. That, and the other one was the fissure, which is basically straight fibers used those days, until these days, I used it to do um, jig, used to do jigs. So those were the only synthetic materials available. So I said to myself, okay, you know, let me try the clouses and the serum using these materials. It was working very well when it came to tie a sand deal, which is, is a thin body. As you know, a sand deal is, is a very thin. But our main bait fish in our area is the bunker. The bunker has a wide profile. And those flies, they are, you know, anywhere from 3 inch to 12, 14 inch long. So divided the length by the girth is a big fly. So there was no way, no how that I could have done those, the basic uh, bait fish that we needed uh, with those kind of synthetic materials, which is was the ultra air and the fish air. So it was a very difficult to create that big silhouette. And the material was stiff. It wasn't really working the way I wanted to be worked. So, and that's when you start to bang in your head on the wall to find the solution. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, as we all know, you know, you never give up. You got to keep on going until you find the solution. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so I was thinking about my father and uh, because my said to my father one day, I said that, you know, what happened when you have a problem, you cannot resolve a problem? Well, my father said that, listen, you know, it's not difficult to resolve the problem. I said, well, can you give him an idea how to handle this? I said, look, problem in life, everybody got problem. But in reality, the, that problem that everybody has, it's not a problem. I said, what are you talking about? You already confused me over here. Well, the problem is that when you cannot resolve the problem, I say, easy to say, but how am I going to handle that? Well, son, come here. Let me tell you something. Come here, sit down next to me. When something happens to you like that, you're going to sit down. You could just kind of relax for a little bit. Then you start to thinking, okay, where the problem coming from and what could be the solution? And then you start to try. Try and do at the same time. You know, you fail, you do that again. You fail, you do that again. If you cannot find what you're looking for to resolve that problem, you keep on looking until you find it. And that's what happened to me. Basically, there was the problem to create the silhouette of those uh, bunker, and I have to find the different materials. 
And that's when I resolved my problem. What were the materials that were popular at the time? And what were the materials that ended up being your solution? Well, uh, as I said to you, the materials that was at my disposal and everybody disposal those days, we're talking about uh, late 80s, uh, 1980s, was that material as a synthetic. That was it. There was nothing else. That's, that's so, it. And then of, that's it. There was no other synthetic material. Zero. Nothing. Um, and then basically what you do, you start to look around. Okay. What about this? What about that? What about if I do this? What about if I use that? And these are trial and error. And then all of a sudden, you know, when something clicked to you, that you're looking at something and you do this, gee, why I ever thought that before or earlier? And that's pretty much what happened. So the fiber, it came to me in a vision and I find the fiber. So now I see these fibers and I see the solution because the fiber was a pliable and it wasn't as stiff, very pliable, soft, and the other, the the lustrous of the fiber just to give it the extra life into it, but not much. And uh, I start looking at, looking at, and the fiber had nothing to do with the fly fishing. As we all know, maybe this nowadays, there are probably, I would say, around 30%, maybe 40% of material that we use these days created for the fly fishing industry, maybe. But in reality, everything else is not done for the fly fishing industry because as you know the fly fishing industry is not a big industry very small so now i see what i see i got what i got and i start to play with the original what i call the peanut butter so what is it where did you get it (laughs) (laughs) well uh the name came after i had no idea how to call these things first i want to see how this thing works, how can I deal with it and put together this uh, materials into the hook to create the silhouette of the bunker, okay? Again, trial and error, and then putting together this fly, and when I put in the water, first time I put them in the water, I mean, it looked good to me in my hand, but when I put into the water, he wasn't looking exactly what I was looking for. Because there is a vision, and I've been telling that people from day one when I was out there, especially when I used to do all those fly show, uh, you needed to understand, you needed to pictures a fly. When you put it together a fly, you're constructing a fly, it doesn't matter what materials you're using, you need to pictures what the fly will look like in the water, not what it looks in front of you via device. You know, if it's a device, it could be a beautiful fly. You do the movement that you're looking for. The color is there. Uh, it just looks perfect to you. But then when you put it in the water, the whole thing changes. I mean, you know, I know, 
and everybody knows that. So I wasn't preaching that, you know, tie the fly, but pictures what this fly looked like eventually into the water. So, of course, in the beginning, it didn't look like nothing to me. And my first mistake was putting a lot of materials into the hook. Right? Was the material so a, 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 a nylon? Was it solid? Was it fibrous? It was a fibrous. It's a very thin fibrous. Okay. okay. And, and where the, did you get it from? Did you go to the local uh, sewing shop or toy maker? I, 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 I went to a local, uh, you know, like a toy sh- shop and kind of, you know, this kid's shop that they're putting things together. And you see this, 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 this things over here that I didn't even remember exactly what it was, but it was something look good to me that it could do the job. And, and to make a long story short, the ones that put that fibers together and put in the water, it was already, I knew the mistake I did. There was too much fibers into the hook. It was a floating and laying flat. That's no good. And start to scale down until he put the right amount of a fiber into the hook until that fly lands into the water and it starts to sink properly, straight down. And when you're receiving, retrieving, and doing the right movement. So that's when I got it. When I said, This is it. You know, this is exactly what I'm looking for. So now I go fishing with it and I catch three, four, five stripers, and I still have my fly over there. And then I catch, you know, three, four bluefish, which they basically destroy everything. And I still have at least half of the fly on the hook and still catching fish. I said, now we're talking over here. So, and again, you know, you're going back and forth to see, okay, um, I have a good start over here. Now let me refine this. Let me figure out how to make sure this thing is durable. Uh, it will ride perfectly the way I want it. The movement, they have to be perfect. And, and all I needed to the fly to really do the job for me. But obviously those fibers I find out there, they were not really doing exactly what I was doing, what I needed. And that's where the big problem became for me. Uh, it's, a, it's a long story. <laughs> no, this it's is really, why, this really, is why we're really here. Really I, I want to hear all of it. Don't, <laughs> don't skimp on the details. Go for it. <laughs> so I say, okay, now I have this fibers. I am in the right I'm going to the right directions, and now what? I need a better fiber than this. This isn't really doing, and that was limited to one, two, three colors. That was it. Uh, This is no good. I needed more colors. I needed the fiber to be more supple. Uh, They needed to stay nice and straight. I needed to be this. I needed to be that. Well, you know, now start you know, the headache, and you do start to do this, gee, you know, <laughs> and now what? Now comes the really, uh, really the, the part that was uh, so difficult for me to deal with it. 
especially my my English wasn't not there yet. I could not go to the manufacturer that were doing these little fibers for that specific or whatever they were doing for, and explain to them what I needed, you know, for and the specs that I wanted. Say, well, you know, to make a long story short, basically. They say, oh, yeah, we can do anything you want. I say, great. You know, I I needed to start at least uh, two dozen of callers. I say, sure. Um, Then my other question was that, uh, how many, you know, how many pounds are we talking about? Well, you know, we can start you off, uh, you know, with 500 pounds per call. What? 500 pounds? I said, are you kidding me? Well, <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> you know, I said, 500 pounds. I said, it's going to take me a lifetime over here for me to use a 500 pound. Because if you think about it, you know, the amount of a fiber that goes in, in, into a fly, I mean, you cannot even put on a scale. But, you know, obviously, when you start to, uh, the process to manufacture it's not just the fiber that goes into the into the hook to finish the fly. There is a waste. There is a, always a waste because the fiber have to be put in together, uh, brushed, and they have to be cut to land. I mean, there is always a waste. So basically, it was one of those things: take it or leave it. Is it five hundred pound or or take it or, or take it work? Basically, that's what it was. Going to the manufacturers and well, I don't have, I didn't have that much of a choice, and uh, it, to me, it was a really, really scary. Um, I said, "How am I going to do this?" Because we're talking about yeah, a lot of money, serious money. And what about if this whole thing is not going to work? And then you know, you just make your mind and say, "Okay, you know what? Is do it." Or you don't do it. And I've always been determined in my life to do what I believe it. I believe it what I had in my hand because there was nothing, nothing out there like it. Nothing. And I say I believe it because I proved the point to myself. I proved the point to all the friends and, and people that I knew uh, about this fly, the peanut the brother. In fact, when I was when I started with that, I opened my little fly shop in town. Oh, oh yes. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. MidwayUSA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com
Wait, wait, wait. I have a question before we go down, before we even go there. So if they had, if they had said to you, we can create 10 pounds of it, would you have gone into business or at this, at that point, were you strictly looking at it from a personal use and not a commercial venture? Nah, at the point it was a business because uh, it, it wasn't at 10 pounds, it was a 500 pounds. But ha- had they said to you, we can do it in 10 pounds, would you have started a business or did you start the business because it was 500 pounds? I, I started the business because it was a 500 pounds. <laughs> because somehow, somehow even, if it, even if it's going to take me you know, 10 years to use, uh, let's say, a red colors, I'm going to have to do it. I have no choice. I need the red, and I gotta have a 500 pound red. You know, obviously, you know there is a colors that will take me one year. There is a colors that will take me three months. There is a colors that might take me in five years to, you know, reorder. But that's you know, it's a huge investment, and that's why I got in business because of that. Because I couldn't have done anything less than 500 pounds. This is so cool. And so then, this, the, the, the fly and, shop well, had you. Yeah, were you still chefing at that point, or had you stopped being a chef when yes, you went down I, yeah, the fly shop? Yes, yes, I was. Yes, I was because I opened the fly shop, and I was basically opened the fly shop when I had my days off, or I was open my shop when uh, you know. Let's say I have uh, you know most of the time I had a night shift as a chef, so in the morning I was open until uh, probably 12 o'clock, if I remember correctly. And 12 o'clock, I closed the door. See you tomorrow morning. That was it. But, you know, you do <laughs> what you have to do, right? Yeah. Especially when, when you believe in something. You believe in something, you know, you'll do it. You know, you sacrifice yourself. And, you know, um, I was very lucky to have my wife to support me. Because if my wife would not support me on this project, I don't think there will be, you know, EP flies these days. I got to be honest. There will not be EP flies, period. Because the wife was very supportive. You know, she was working at the same time uh, as well. And, uh, you know, the kids around, you have to taking care of the kids, you know, the way it is. You're a mother now. I don't have to tell you that. And you have a necessity. So I was working as a chef at the fly shop. And the money invested into that was money I didn't have in those days. So it was quite uh, tricky. Let's put it this way. Uh, and that's when I basically I got started with that, with the original EP fibers. So that was uh, back when I first started working with that was, I would say, 89, 1989. That's right, 1989, and then uh, the 90 comes, 91, 91, when I started to put, you know, the, those flies, they start to show out there, going fishing in the Long Island. And I have to admit it, I have to tell you that it wasn't easy in the beginning, especially when I started to do the fly show back um, 94, and around 1994, 93. That's when I started to do the fly show. Uh, me coming from the middle of nowhere with this line of a peanut butter. People say peanut butter. They say, where did you come out with this damn peanut butter? What is that? Uh, what are you talking about? You know, name is a name. You know what I mean? So 
I decided to call it peanut butter because my kids, as a kid, they love peanut butter. You know, you put a little gel on top and it doesn't matter. You know, I have to admit, I like myself that. I like to make a nice sandwich of peanut butter and jelly take with me on the boat when I go fishing or when I go <laughs> south fishing as well. I say, okay, peanut, peanut bunker, that's the correct name, peanut bunker, peanut butter. So it sounds good. And, you know, it, this fly, you know, this fish like this fly, so it seems to be tasty to them. All right, peanut butter it is. So that's how <laughs> the name it got started <laughs> in the peanut butter. And, and then, I, as I say, in the beginning, it was very difficult, very difficult because the people then did not assimilate the idea to say uh, to themselves, well, there is not only one way in life. There is many ways to achieve, uh, you know, the goal that you're looking for. And, uh, you know, for the most part, people are very, uh, it's very difficult for them to change when they have a, you know, that kind of habit and that traditionalist. And I understand, don't get me wrong. I do understand. I mean, the feathers and and, and, and deer hair and bucktail, whatever you want, they're still catching a lot of fish. Absolutely. I mean, we all know that. But for that kind of fishing I was doing those days here in the Long Island Sound, it wasn't not working for me. It wasn't not working for me. Tying one fly and then get one fish and then I have to put a new fly and other fish and a fly. No, I said, this definitely is not working for me. Yeah, I figured you probably got some pushback by the, from the purists. But what about your shop? Did you <laughs> sell rods or did you just sell fibers? Were you selling custom flies? What were you selling at that time? Well, at that time for me, uh, 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 done the investment in those fibers, there was no money to carry the heavy-duty stuff, reels, rods, weathers. And so I kind of uh, dedicated myself to have a fly shop for the fly type. Oh, cool. Okay. All right. it, was, it, was, it was a very, you know, it was less money to be invested. And as you know, uh, people, when they walk into a fly shop, uh, and they look at the walls, and all the material is there. The colors is over there. It's like a candy shop. You know, you buy, in reality, uh, materials, things that you never use. It. It's true. I mean, I was the same thing when I used to go to the fly shop. I used to buy materials that I really, I don't even know if I say I will never use it, but it looks good to me. I like it. So there it is. So basically... Uh, yes, uh, I kind of dedicated myself looking to the flight time, uh, whatever I needed for the flight time. And I remember those days, the couple of fly shop I used to go, uh, let's say that uh, you were looking for a specific uh, air dubbing, uh, you had maybe 12 colors. But airline dubbing those days, let's say they used to make about, I don't know, 32, 34 different colors. So my idea was that, okay, if I carry this specific dubbing and there is a 40 colors available, I will hang it on the wall 40 colors so that when the customer comes 
and they look at the colors that he needed, is there. Because if it's not there, they're going to be upset the first time, upset the second time, the third time, they might not come back because you don't have what they're looking for. So, <clears throat> again, let's assume that uh, they needed the yellow, um, but they see over there that beautiful uh, uh, olive brown. They like the colors. They might not need it, so they grab it because they see over there. So that's the way it is. And it's, it's good. I mean, I would say it's nice because those are our toys. You know what I mean? It's, in the fly, in the flight time family, we like to do that. We want to have everything that is available, which is great. Now, you really, in my opinion, anyway, found wide, widespread fame with your brushes, with the dubbing brushes. Was that? Can you tell okay. me the story of how those came to be? I've got a million questions for you. <laughs> All right, uh, the brushes. Well. Um, once I set up uh, the peanut uh, butterfly uh, line and family, you know, whatever we want to call it, uh, basically uh, from the fly, um, it was a northeast fly. Then I start to migrate it down to warm water, like uh, Florida. Um, in Florida, you need a different bait fish, uh, especially when you're fishing for permit, when you're fishing for tarpon, redfish, uh, bullfish, and so forth and so on. So that those are different uh, areas require different pattern. So um, I was lucky enough for me using those fibers to be able to create a, basically a crab pattern or a shrimp pattern, right? For me, it was easy to put together the fly. It would take uh, maybe 15, 20 minutes, whatever, to do a crab fly. A crab fly, in my opinion, doesn't matter how you're doing. I have a little bit of experience about that. Uh, it doesn't matter how you're doing. doesn't matter what kind of corner you want to cut it, it's going to take you a good 20 minutes. Easy. Because a crab pattern is very elaborate flies to tie. If you want to, the fly that really do the job for you. <clears throat> so, it was a little bit time consuming to tie the flies. Even for me, producing the fly, it was time consuming. And uh, it wasn't really doing uh, good for me. So at some point uh, for the brush, I going back uh, those days, uh, I saw a fellow in Europe uh, that he was fooling around with uh, with brushes for trout. Uh, but it was a kind of uh, crude uh, in terms of what he was doing. Um, and say, you know what, uh, it's a good idea, but I think I can do better. Uh, I think that I can apply that to whatever I needed to do it in terms of the brushes. So 
I say it will be easier to wrap these materials in a hook than just apply the fibers into a hook, right? So, and then, uh, of course, you're starting to do the trial and error. Uh, you have to find the, the right uh, um, wire, the right diameter. Um, you have to be standing still for salt water. Uh, it cannot be copper or it cannot be any other materials. You have to be a standing still. You have to be a, a certain diameter. It cannot be too thick. It cannot be too thin. Otherwise, it will break. So that's when I started to put those uh, brushes together for salt water. And when I did that, the, the first brush I did was a streamer brush. Uh, we're talking about, I would say, 96. Yeah, 96, Oh, that 95. early. Yeah, how, did you, how did you do it? Obviously, they didn't have the machine at that time. Were, did you have a couple uh, of vices or...? No, there there was a, some I you know there was a, some kind of uh, I put together a machine, uh, you know with with some kind of uh, drill and that we didn't work it and then some kind of spinning device that I put it together and uh, you know you have to uh, design that that specific uh, tool to to design and do that uh, because the brushes we. The brushes that we manufacture, they're about 10 inch long, okay? And uh, it took me a little time to perfect it, but I did it. So once I did the first uh, uh, streamer brush, and I realized that, uh, wait a minute, so now if I want to tie this crab, it will take me less time. Now I can cut the time on it to, to do that specific crab or a shrimp. Right, so um, that was basically the idea, you know, for the brush, because even those days I was doing demo. There was no videos. There was no YouTube. Uh, there was no telephone. There was nothing. I mean, nothing. <laughs> if you have to do a video, you know, it, it was going to cost a lot of money to do it, and it wasn't the video that really you were looking for. So uh, all the demonstration I did uh, to do those uh, uh, crab pattern and shrimp pattern without using the brush, people, they kind of say, ah, you know, yeah, it looks nice. They're good. They will catch fish. But I cannot spend, you know, a couple hours or one hour to tie one crab. And they were right, absolutely right. Because, you know, it's whatever you do, or whatever I did when it comes to the fly tying, uh, for what I, I for what I started, you know, people they were kind of intimidated because it was a, something totally new, something totally different. So the technique how to put the fibers in a hook, uh, it took took people you know a very long time to assimilate. But in reality, uh, it's not difficult to do it. It's like anything else. If you don't practice, you're never going to be able to do it. You have to practice to do, you know, in a way that will be easy for you. So I say, well, people still 
don't get it or people they don't have the patience or people they don't have the time you know you gotta go to work and this and that so that's when it came up with the idea of the brushes I said okay let's put these materials in a in a wire winding these things into the hook put a couple of legs use a little marabou if you want to tail, put a little <coughs> rabbit strip for the claw or whatever and put something and put a couple of eyes and put a lead eyes and then here you have the crab. So basically the first brush was created uh, for me to do and produce those crab fly and think that's that's how that happened. So that was the the uh, streamer brush was the first brush I did it. So do you know today how many brushes uh, EP flies is able to offer to the market, colors and sizes? No, how many? Can you tell? I uh, can guess at least. You know, help me out or guess me. Ninety-seven. You guess me. No, now it's too much. <laughs> we produce. We offer thirty-six brushes as of today. So, because you've got the EP fibers, but you've also got, I've seen different materials. They're almost like a squiggly plastic. And I've seen them in 10 million colors. Which which materials are you referring to? Let me grab it. One sec. I've got my whole dubbing brush box here. Most of them are in Canada, but... Is this... Yeah, EP steel egg brush. There's these little... Okay. Right, those are uh, basically micro rubber legs. Right. That you that you apply into the into the brush. And uh, originally, when I you know obviously when you know you started uh, one brush like I did for the original one, the streamer brush, and then I saw those little legs available in the market. Now I add a couple of uh, rubber legs on it. It gives it more life, more appearance. So if you think about it, you wrap in the brush in a hook to create a a, uh, a crab pattern. Now you have those little legs coming popping up from everywhere, create a motion. They bring the life to a life. Even if you have the fly sitting on in a bottom of uh, on rocks or, or grass or whatever, and you don't move the fly. If you look at the flies, those legs, they're kind of moving. You know, they have that kind of life, uh, natural life when they get into the water. So I say, well, that is actually a good addition to that specific brush. And then after that, of course, you know, many others come up. But that's what I mean. I feel like, I mean, I'm I'm looking at, I only have a tenth of my fly tying stuff here. And I'm looking at 12 or 13 different brushes here. So what, um, and just for people who are watching this on YouTube right now, I'll I'll hold up one of the brushes so that people can get a visual of what I'm talking about. But um, so is it 36 total brushes? That you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought it was more than yes. that. Well, 30, 36 different brushes, uh, just the style of the brush. You multiply it by the colors. That's what I'm talking about. The- <laughs> so, so, so that's yes. my question. How many SKUs do yeah. you have? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, let's say that uh, every brush we have around the two SKUs. 
you know, given and taken, and so you multiply 36 by 24, 26, that given number right there. Uh, a lot of skews. A lot, yeah. Uh, it's great. Because yeah, they come in different sizes, yeah. colors, yeah, materials. Yeah. It, they are amazing. But I want to talk to you about how that all came to be because I remember when they hit the market and went really mainstream. It would it would have been it would have been ten years after you had first created them. Did it take a while for them to really kick off? Uh, yes, it did. It, it did. It did because again, uh, when you have something new, we're talking about those days. You know, uh, our days, people are angry to see what's new for this year, what's new for this year, and in reality, there isn't really much new these days anymore, uh, because. I believe that how much more new stuff you need. I mean, in my opinion, we reached the top you know, of creating a new, new material. I mean, when I mean new in the true sense, uh, in the true sense of the of the world, that there is nothing really that new because you know what happened is you know uh, you you saw that through the years we reached the point to have. Uh, Everything at our disposal, especially you know when I started with the P fibers and then the brushes, uh, the P fibers that came with different other uh, uh, synthetic materials along with the brushes. At some point, how much more really can create it? We reached the top. You repeating pretty much the same thing. So now that we reach the point, we're shifting. You know. Uh, people they shifting towards more creating something that is not a fly anymore. You know, you know there is a definition of a fly. At some point, you have to ask it to yourself: Wait a minute, is this a fly, or is this a lure, or is this a jig, or is this a fly? What's you your know? definition? Because the purists would have been asking <laughs> you this <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I have to say, I have to say this in my opinion, and I tell you my honest opinion. Uh, when I came out with the fibers, uh, the P fibers, and do the fly with the P fibers, I kind of I understood that that time that putting a synthetic in a hook, ja, is already. We are one, two step away from the true fly, because that is a, a natural materials. The purpose of a fly that will fool the fish, right? If it's in fresh water or salt water, should be done with natural materials. Okay, that is my two cents of opinion. So now we're using the synthetic. In this case, you know, 30 years ago, the P fibers. Yes, it will create a silhouette I wanted. Uh, yes, it will give me the motion I wanted. Yes, it will give me everything I wanted the fly to be when it comes into the water, give it the action. But is that a 100% fly? You know, a true fly? Okay. If we go back to the history about the fly, fly, not even a salt water fly is it should be a fly. You know, a, a, a fly was, if we go back to the history of a fly, it's done just for child, right? That's what it was. Uh, 
So everybody has his own opinion, which is great. You know, it's absolutely fantastic. And it should be that way. And we should keep on doing what we're doing. Uh, because I've been saying that from day one, you know, that especially these days, there is there is so much talented out there creating flies that they are fantastic. You know what I mean? It's fantastic because today we have the tools to do that, to create those flies. But if we go back 30 years ago when there wasn't nothing, uh, that's a different story. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's it's interesting to hear from you. <laughs> so there you have it. You know what I mean? So, what about your EP shrimp? I've got buddies out here who swear that it's the only fly that works for them out in Sydney Harbor. Um, what can I say? If it works, if it works for them, I mean, it's great, fantastic. You know, what is that you you want to know about the, the, the shrimp? <laughs> How, the shrimp wh- why does it why does it fish different? What about it makes it different to all the other saltwater flies that are on the market, or to some of the other saltwater flies on the market? I honestly, I, I honestly, I don't know because uh, the the shrimp dubbing that was first what I, I did the shrimp dubbing, and then I was using uh, a dubbing to create the loop and put the fibers on it, wrap around the hook, and then got my shrimps, and then it turned to the brush. Uh, you know, again, the idea was that. Mainly my idea about the brochure was that, okay, I'm very capable to create it, to do a loop and insert the materials, spin it, and do that. For me, it's easy to do it. But for the majority of the fly tire, uh, those days, until these days, they don't have the patience, the ability to do that. It's kind of time-consuming and difficult. But and that's why... I created the, the EP brushes. But going back to the to the, uh, uh, the shrimp dubbing, well, maybe it's a combination of the uh, materials involved into that that created uh, the brush in a way that those fishes see what they're looking for, okay? And the combination of that, you know, I'll tell you, there's no secret on that, uh, is the EP fibers, the silky fibers, and there is a, an additional uh, amount of angora goat, which is a natural material. Gotcha. So here we go back. Here we go back again to the question you asked to me: What is the definition of a fly? Okay, <laughs> is a fly or is a a lure? You know, so it's a question mark. Yeah. So, it's, so it's, I, we'll, we'll leave so that probably, as an open question. Yeah, we'll leave it. All, you know, again, you know what I mean. We have to be open to uh, to any of this question. We, they, to me, you know, when I hear somebody, no, this is the way it is, and that's it. That's wrong. You know, you just be open to anything. So going back to the shrimp, whatever those fish they see on your arbor in Sydney Arbor, and I know all about it because I'm getting an email every so often. You know, I killed those fish today. We had a fantastic time today and this and that. It makes me feel great. You know, that means I put together something that works. 
How, so did you design that pattern? And on that same question, how many fly patterns are you guys selling now? Uh, gee, that's, uh, that's a, that's a really tough one. I don't have a really number on me, but I would say probably we have, um, um, about 120 different oh my patterns. Oh gosh, that's a lot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot. And, um, you know, we like to, you know, when I, when I do a flies, I rarely, um, discontinue the fly, even if it's not really, uh, sell the way we want to, to be sell, let's say, uh, it's quite interesting that, uh, to say, let's say I put it together a shrimp pattern this year, and I know that shrimp is working for bonefish or parmit or whatever. And I, because I try, I go fishing, I catch fish, and that's what I do. You know, if I don't have the, uh, the time to go fishing and to test the fly, I have friends out there, people that I send the fly, they'll do that for me and so forth and so on. So, but it's quite interesting. Let's say that uh, I put the flies together this year and it's not selling the way we're looking at because I think mainly because people now, they used to know the flies that they catch fish and they're very confident. So I said, why do I want to, you know, even try the new patterns when I have this pattern, I will catch the fish. So, and then, but, I put them on the side. I'm not discontinued. And then it's like, uh, I, I can't even explain myself. Let's say like two years of leather, even sometimes three years of leather is like a boom. You know yeah. I mean? We cannot make enough. <laughs> we cannot make enough to, you know, to just supply the demand of that species. I say, you know, I, I, in fact, we were talking about this with my son a couple of days ago. I said, we got to be ready for that. I mean, that's the way it's been working for all these years for me and I cannot explain why it's, it's happening, but it's been happening. It's been happening. So, yeah, I would say that we have about 120 uh, patterns out there and, uh, you know, a, every year I, I put maybe one or two new in the market. Uh, I am thinking in a different way. The, a, any other manufacturer that every year they have to put uh, so many new patterns out there. I don't see the need for uh, at this point. We are very confident that the product that we put them out there, uh, people are very happy and we have a reputation uh, that, I mean, it's a reputation that make us very proud. Uh, quality is, is number one thing that we really care the most. Yeah. It's uh, unwavering. It's the You've stayed it, consistent. Yeah, if the quality is not there, flies or materials or brush or whatever, we're not putting on the market, period. And, uh, you know, the best compliment I'm getting uh, uh, from from consumers say, you know, Enrico, I got to tell you this. If I buy, let's say, if I buy a, a, a peanut butter in, uh, in, 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 uh, in the city, in New York City, uh, Urban Angle in the Fifth Avenue, and I buy a, a peanut butter, let's say, in Idaho, uh, you know, it, it's unbelievable. It's the same fly. There is no difference between the fly that is in Idaho or the fly I find down there in, in Miami or the one I find in New York because, you know, it's very important to us uh, to keep that way and, you know, gain 
uh, trust from the consumer is uh, high. And uh, to lose that, it takes nothing, nothing. Uh, tell you, we, we do pay a lot of attention to that. Awesome. How many pounds of fiber do you go through now a year? Uh, let me see. Um, as an average, uh, a couple of thousand pounds. <laughs> Are you still with the same supplier or did you end up branching out and going uh, elsewhere? We, we branch it to a couple of suppliers right now. Uh, someone specialized for one specific fibers, someone specific for another specific fibers, uh, as well color. And for us, it's very important uh, to have the consistency on the fibers. I mean, I wanted to emphasize this. We haven't changed the fibers from day one. We haven't changed it at all. Because they say that if he, if he ain't brought, don't fix it, right? Yep. So, and again, you know, going back through my years and for what I, I did it uh, 30 years ago, um, and being the first one with the with the P fibers, and I have to say, you know, very uh, proudly, you know, nobody can take that away from me. Nobody. Uh, being the first one doing that, uh, we want to keep it away. The, the uh, the colors is there, the consistency is there, the fibers are there the same because if I I don't even want to think about it to change it, try to make it better, why? It really doing the job the way it's supposed to be done. And we're gonna keep we're gonna keep it that way. Is we're gonna keep that way. Even the wire, and for so many years I've used scissors to cut the wire, but you don't have to, do you? You've got a wire that's light enough. You can just jiggle it and it breaks. You, yeah, you can jiggle. You can jiggle. You can uh, you can uh, break it. But what I would say that uh, you know, if you want to use the scissor, you know, in reality, uh, a lot of people really uh, not. I'm not saying they don't know how to use the, the tools, uh, but they don't think. Uh, I see people use the scissor and snip the wire. You know, with the points of the of the scissor. <laughs> Ouch. Don't do that. If you want to, you know, if you're working with your scissor in your hand the way I do, you know, I never leave my scissor and my bobbin. The scissor and bobbin is always in my hand. Here. So if you want to cut the wire, don't use the tip of the of the scissor. Go all the way down here. Because you will never use this to send the fly. You follow me? Yep. Yeah. At the end, you never use that to trim the, the fibers or the whatever materials you use it. No, it's a wire cutter. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, wire cutter. You know what? I have one of the best tools available out there. It's a nail clipper. It cost me 99 cents exactly. for the pharmacy. <laughs> that, that's what I use it. I've been using that forever. Amen. Same it. thing. Amen. <laughs> and you know what? After four or five years of that doesn't clip anymore, I go buy another 99 cents. Well, these days it's not 99 cents anymore, but maybe it's a dollar fifty. A dollar ninety nine, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a dollar ninety nine. <laughs> I'm so I'm so happy that we sat down to do this because I had no idea that you have such a long history or that this went back so far. I I I thought that you 
I knew you started in the fly fishing industry, I figured probably the 90s, but I thought that the brushes didn't really come out till t- mid-2000s, so this is really cool to hear. What's next for you? What are you, what are you planning on doing now? Uh, I want to retire. <laughs> Does that sound good to you? Yeah, absolutely. You deserve it. What's going to happen with the business? What, what's, what's the strategy? Uh, well, the strategy is very simple. I'm, um, um, I'm very lucky that uh, my son, Daniel, and my daughter, Vanessa, they took over EP Flies. So the future is there and uh, everything is in place uh, to turn over uh, the key, basically, to both of them, especially, you know, my son has been uh, with uh, EP Flies now for the past four years almost. Uh, Vanessa just uh, came aboard uh, this past year. And... um, you know, I have to say that uh, Daniel is handling EP flies uh, beautifully. No problem. Much, much better than I, I can, <laughs> and I do. Um, now we are in the process. For the past uh, couple of years, I've been in the process. Basically, Daniel to go over with me and handling the factory, uh, because handling the factory is uh, it's not easy, uh, especially when. Uh, uh, we have to deal with uh, many employees, and uh, we want to keep, you know, the quality of the product. You know, it's very important not to change that. And uh, uh, this is what we have uh, in place for the future. And uh, hopefully, in the next uh, year or so, I will be retired. But my son. My daughter, my wife, they say, ah, you will never retire. You know, I have to admit it. You know, they, uh, <laughs> they, are, right, they are right about that. Uh, I will be still involved because always, you know, ideas crossing my mind. Uh, I will say that I would like to stick with the fly. Uh, I will not deviate myself uh, into those uh, other patterns, whatever we want to call it, I'm going to stick, even if he's involved on fibers. And that's pretty much what we do. Uh, also, um, yes, I want to retire because, uh, you know, we we open a, a, uh, a lodge down in Mexico uh, uh, as a family business. This is another part of our business. Uh, we have a fishing lodge in Campeche, Mexico. Um, I like to spend, I've been spending a lot of time down there in Mexico. It's a lovely place. It's a unique and different place. It's a really uh, top-notch. It's it's quality place like uh, EP product. Let's put it this way. Um, I've been spent, actually, uh, I'm planning to, to spend a little bit more time from over there. And... Uh, that's what I really want to do it. You know, I'm going to be still involved. I, I don't think, I don't believe I will be doing shows anymore. It's been now, I think, uh, four years I haven't done a show. But Daniel and Vanessa, they're going to be, uh, do some shows, you know, just to put their face in front of the people as an EP flies. And, uh, and that's pretty much the future of EP. And I hopefully uh, we keep on doing, you know, only the good things we've been doing until these days. 
Um, I'm going to link up EP obviously in the link, but what about the lodge? Where can people find more information about your fishing lodge? Uh, the, the fishing lodge is a link to our website, and the the name of the uh, the lodge is uh, Casa Colorinda, uh, which it takes over my mother's name. My mother's name was Clorinda. Uh, is a really uh, lovely place. Again, as I said before, it's an old colonial house brought up to speed our days and. Uh, it's not a big, uh, it's not a big lodge. You know, we we can handle up to eight people. We don't want more than that uh, because we want to make sure to provide the service and the quality. Uh, you know, for what people are really expecting from from us. That's pretty much it. But the link is to do that, and uh, I will have it in Daniel actually uh, get in touch with you. Uh, so that you guys can exchange whatever uh, information you might need. It sounds great. Is that is that right? That sounds awesome. No, I look forward to I look forward to meeting him. And I'm so like I said, I'm so happy to learn about your history. It's way it far surpassed what I had imagined. So thank you for taking the time to do this. <laughs> you are welcome. You are welcome. Hopefully, I will get I will see you out there in some place one of these days. I haven't seen you in a long time. I know it's been right? years, years. Yes, I, I think last time I saw you was in Denver. You're talking about several years ago. It's more that's than several. Than, <laughs> yeah, more than several. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, don't, well, don't be a stranger. <laughs> let's let's stay in touch and maybe and, and let uh, me know if you get to Australia. I think you'd really love it down here. Uh, believe it or not, uh, my Australia is in my uh, is in my checklist. I have a couple of friends in Australia that I would like to visit one of these days, and if I will go down that way, I will certainly let you know. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.